And, it, um, and the, the title of our message tonight is What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. Now, I wasn't going to tell this story, and it's not in my notes, but Chloe's not here, so I thought, <laughs> why not? Um, seven weeks ago, I just left Chloe to the airport um, today to get back to England. She's on her last week of placement. Praise God, she's going to be home um, next Sunday. But Seven weeks ago, I was going to drive her from uh, Belfast Port uh, to uh, Liverpool, Liverpool Docks. And so we had to take the dreaded Liverpool sailing from Belfast to Liverpool, an eight-hour slog across the Irish Sea. And in our naivety, we thought, oh, sure, it'll be grand. You'll get a wee snooze on the way over, and you'll wake up, and it'll be fine. Not so, right? So we get on the boat, and it's one of those ones, you know sometimes if you leave Belfast Lock and it's nice and smooth, and then it gets a wee bit rough, and then you're thinking, oh here, it was rough from the very minute we got on it, right? And so what happens is we were driving onto the boat, it wasn't lower deck parking, it was the very top deck the car was sitting on, and I was winding Chloe up going, here, this car could go over the side here, this could happen. She's beginning to panic. Anyway, we're on the boat, and uh, we're in the, <laughs> the whole seating area thing, and uh, Things begin to get really, really bad. Things begin, the weather completely shifts. The storm begins to go. It was one of those nights where other sailings were canceled, but of course, our sailing went ahead. People are being sick. Everything seems to be kind of falling apart. Now, it was one of those moments, and this is our title this evening, what to do when you don't know what to do. And it was one of those things where I'm not steering the boat. Chloe's not steering the boat. We're not in control of the situation. And to be honest, it's one of those things where you've got eight hours and you really don't know what to do. But we all deal with things differently, don't we? We all try to handle a situation differently from each other. And so here's my strategy for when things get really, really bad on the boats, right? What I will do is I will have to lie flat on my back. If there's none of those long, um, soft seating areas, I don't care. I will lie on the floor, okay? I will do whatever I have to do to get laid out flat somewhere on my back. And I will put on my headphones and I will blast just whatever old school worship stuff I can find on my phone, right? But the problem was when there was a wee bit of silence or when there was a break in the song, it wasn't just about me trying to work out how I was going to deal with the situation. I could then hear how Chloe was dealing with the situation every time there was a break in the song. So it was going, swing low, sweet chariots. Jordan, I don't feel well. Coming forth to carry me home. I'm going to be sick. Swing low, sweet chariots. We're all going to die. Coming forth to... That, that was it for eight hours straight. I didn't get a wink, right? Chloe was panicking with every other passenger of the boat. But we all have different ways of handling stuff, don't we? Now, to be fair, to Chloe's credit, right? That's how she reacts in those situations. But on the flip side, we can swap roles, right? See, when one of us are ill, usually when I'm ill, I do get a wee bit dramatic, right? If, no, what? <laughs> if I so much as cough, I'm like, Lord, I see the light into you. I command my spirit. And Chloe's like, would you ever catch a grip? Chloe will march through anything, whereas I'm a wee bit softer in that area. Like, But anyway, we all deal with things a little bit differently from each other. And one of the most difficult things that we'll ever come across is knowing what to do when we don't know what to do. Knowing what to do 
when we don't know what to do. And so tonight we're going to look at Jehoshaphat. Um, this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. I, I love the history of it. I love um, the events that unravel that we're going to look at. And if you're not familiar, maybe you are familiar with Second Chronicles 20 where the, inve- the events come out. Um, but even if you're not, this is what we're going to do. We're going to lift out three things to hear when you don't know what to do and three things to do when you don't know what to do. Three things to hear, three things to do. So let's begin at the beginning of the passage. It's 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. And it starts like this. The Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Mayanites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already at Hazen Tamar, and that's about 50 miles from the capital city, Jerusalem. So at this time in history, Israel is divided into two. There's the northern kingdom, which is the kingdom of Israel, and there's the southern kingdom, which is the kingdom of Judah. Now, Jehoshaphat, if you haven't met him before, Jehoshaphat is the fourth king of Judah, and generally he was a God-fearing kind of leader. He was a descendant of the famous King David, and during his reign, he would take Levites and temple workers from Jerusalem to instruct the people in God's word. So he was generally a godly leader. He also actively sought to destroy idols in the land, things that would set themselves up against the glory of God. But Jehoshaphat's one major fault was that he kept in the wrong kind of friendship circles, which is maybe another message for another time. But still, God blesses Jehoshaphat. He makes him a wealthy and powerful king. But just as a a cat that's got a wee bit fat enjoys kind of lying about the grounds instead of prowling them, The people of Israel ended up a wee bit like that as well, as the king Jehoshaphat. They were enjoying the glory. They were enjoying the splendor. They were enjoying the good days because that's the only real reason that we can work out as to why three invading armies managed to get to the capital city or 50 miles from the capital city before anybody noticed. Now, the one thing that strikes me right at the beginning of this story is that when Jehoshaphat is told There is an invading army. There's three nations that are coming against us. Jehoshaphat has no say in the matter. He gets no opinion on what's happening. He didn't get to pick the enemy. He didn't get to pick this battle. And he doesn't know what to do. Have you ever had to fight an enemy that you didn't choose? Have you ever been in a fight that you didn't pick? Have you ever received an attack that you didn't see coming? I think these are the kind of moments where we stand back and say, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do about this. I think it works in every area of life, actually, where maybe it's something in health, or maybe it's something in finance, something in our our family, our relationships, or our careers, where we stand back and go, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So here's the first two things that Jehoshaphat did to be practical. This was his response. Immediately, he decided to seek God's will. Let's go to verse three. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. 
We might think the lesson is really simple. If, you know, we don't want to simplify too much where we go, if you don't know what to do, just seek God and it'll be all okay. Just, just seek him and it'll be fine. But that's not the substance of this. It's not just the fact that King Jehoshaphat sought God when he didn't know what to do, but it's how he sought God when he didn't know what to do. If we look closely, it says that he went to seek help from the Lord and that everybody came from Judah in the towns of Judah to seek God. Now, in the Hebrew, it's mentioned twice, just like in our English translation, the word seek. And when anything is mentioned twice in scripture, it means that the author wants us to pay special attention to it. Because seeking God was the hallmark of Jehoshaphat's reign. You'll see throughout the rest of Chronicles that usually when crisis came to his door, his first reaction, the first practical thing that he did, seek God. And he would often do it in two ways. The first way he would seek God was worship. And secondly, discovering his will. Now, worship will come too. But the discovering of God's will for Jehoshaphat when he didn't know what to do would prove critical to this event in history. By seeking God and seeking his will, something significant, I think, happens, particularly for Jehoshaphat and particularly for us if we follow in his footsteps. When we seek God, it immediately relieves our responsibility to try and find the answer for a situation. When we don't know what to do, I think we can almost be put into a corner where we feel as though we have to come up with all the answers. But when we seek God's will, it takes the reliance off us, it removes the burden, it removes the pressure from our lives and says, God, you know better than I do. When we don't know what to do, seek the will of God. I wonder is the Lord may be inviting some of us tonight to accept an invitation to stop always trying to be the one with the solutions to everything. The solutions in the issues in our family, the solutions to the issues in our lives. And instead, in humility, take a step back and say, Lord, I'm gonna seek your will. This is what he does next. The second thing that he does practically is this. He decides to seek the face of God in prayer. Now, again, like the way he was seeking God's will, the whole point of this isn't that, again, you know, if you're not sure what to do, you don't know what to do, it's not, okay, go pray, and it's all gonna be okay. Again, the significance and the power of this passage is not found purely because Jehoshaphat said, I'm gonna go and pray, but it's what he prays. It is the content of what he actually says that gives us some practical tips of how to go and seek God's face when we don't know what to do. So let's read through this prayer and take out a couple of pointers for our lives. Verse five, then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not God? who is in heaven. First thing Jehoshaphat does is he reminds himself that God listens. He reminds himself and the people 
that God listens. Jehoshaphat prays, are you not the God in heaven? Now, this is a rhetorical question. Jehoshaphat is not waiting for a response from God in this one. Are you not the God in heaven? It's a rhetorical question, which is actually, technically, Jehoshaphat praising God. Because throughout the Psalms, you'll find this, and throughout Chronicles, you will find this, that when any, any writer or any author says, are you not the God of heaven? What they're saying is, Heaven is where you hear our prayers and therefore you're listening. Are you not the God of heaven? In other words, God, are you not in heaven already listening to my concern? Are you not in heaven already stooping low to hear what little old me has to say? When you don't know what to do and you are in prayer, remember first and foremost that God is listening, that he is attentive to what you have to say. Even through Jesus, and if we think even back to the veil in the temple, through his death and through his resurrection, the veil is removed, the barrier is removed, and so you and I tonight, and this is the truth for us, when we don't know what to do, we have a Father in heaven who does know what to do. We have a Father in heaven who listens to what we have to say. This is what he prays next. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. This is the second thing he does in his prayer. He declares the power of God. Here Jehoshaphat basically blatantly denies the reality that's in front of him. He speaks against it and he denies it even though there's three armies facing him, even though they are outnumbered. And if we put it in today's terms, they are outgunned. Jehoshaphat devised what's in front of him. Instead, he declares the power of God in his life. If you think about it, three nations come to the kingdom of Judah's doorstep and Jehoshaphat stands back and says, Lord, you rule over all the kingdoms and nations. They're outnumbered and outgunned and Jehoshaphat prays, power and might are in your hand, God, and no one can withstand you. Sometimes we have to speak to the battle. Sometimes we have to speak to the situation where we don't know what to do and we have to declare God's superiority, God's glory, God's might over it. No one can withstand you, God. God, the nations are in your hands. He declares God's power. When you don't know what to do, declare over what you're facing the power of God. And when we declare the power of God in our circumstances and what we're facing and the thing where we're standing and we're saying, God, I don't know what to do, it raises our expectancy for God to do what only God can do. It raises our expectancy for God to step in and to do what only he can do. This is what he prays next. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? This is the third thing he prays. He calls, or this is the third way he prays, and you lost my words there. He calls on God's faithfulness. Jehoshaphat again basically is asking a rhetorical question. He says, is this land not what you promised to Abraham, your friend? 
Jehoshaphat in this moment claims the promises of God that are not just for him, but were for his ancestors and the people before us. In other words, Jehoshaphat is saying, if you were faithful in your promises to Abraham, well then you'll be faithful in your promises to us. A wee while ago, a couple of months ago, we did a two-part series called Monument Moments, where we looked at moments in our lives where God was faithful that we can go back and look to, to drive us on into the future. That if God was faithful to me then, he's going to be faithful to me now. And so what Jehoshaphat is declaring before God and he is declaring before the people and stirring his faith and shifting his perspective of prayer is that God, if you were faithful to Abraham, then you're going to be faithful to us. Faithful then, faithful now. And sometimes in our prayers, it is no harm or it does no harm to bring before God the moments where he stepped in for you. The moments where he was faithful to you. The moments where you weren't sure if God was gonna come through and he did. Because when we do that, it stirs our faith and it shifts our perspective when we don't know what to do. But the story continues and this is what he prays next. immediately after. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Scholars actually would refer to this as one of the most significant, most vulnerable moments of trust that we can read anywhere in Scripture. Jehoshaphat is the king. Jehoshaphat is the leader. Jehoshaphat's meant to be the one who has it all together. And in front of God's own people, he says, God, I don't have this. I haven't got the answers in this one. I don't know the solution. I don't know what to do, but my eyes, they're on you. I think sometimes we can feel the pressure, can't we? To be the one with all the answers. And to be the one with the solutions. When in actual fact we're invited in humility to say, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Recognizing our weaknesses can become a strength. Maybe the words of Jesus to Paul could also be his words for us tonight as well. This is what he says. Next slide, thank you. My grace is sufficient for you, my power made perfect in your weakness. Sometimes weakness and sometimes not knowing what to do can be the strongest place to be. When the grace of God is involved, being weak, not having the answers, and not knowing what to do can be your strongest place to be. Here's what happens next. Going to verse 13. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives, and children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. 
Tomorrow, march out against them, but you will not even have to fight. Take your positions, then stand and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. So what happens is the Spirit of God comes upon one of the men. He prophesied. Now, now keep in mind, this, as the Scripture would indicate, happens immediately after Jehoshaphat says, I don't know what to do. And yet the Spirit of God comes in and he breathes words to the people. When we say we don't know what to do, when we come before God and say, Lord, we don't have this, there's three things that he speaks over our life from this prophecy that we can take away. This is our three things to hear. Do not be afraid or discouraged by what you're up against. Why? Because two, this battle is not yours it's mine. The enemies that rise up against the children of God are therefore the enemies of God. Battles that come to the children of God, God takes on as his own battle. And the third thing God speaks over us is this, I am with you through Christ's resurrection and the gift of the Spirit. He is always with us. What Jehoshaphat said earlier about Abraham being a friend of God, he's claiming a promise of land that always belonged to them, that God would keep his promise. But we have a far greater promise. Our promise is not land. Our promise is God's presence. And so sometimes there's nothing wrong with when you are seeking the face of God to say, Father, I want to claim the, pres the promise of your presence that you would never leave me and that you would never forsake me even when I don't know what to do. The story continues, verse 20. Early the next morning, they're about to go to war. The army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. After consulting the people, listen to this, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. Now, I'm no military strategist, right? But my first reaction was like, oh, we're fighting? Send out the choir, right? <laughs> Nobody with the right mind would have sent out the worship team. Sorry, Alison, right? <laughs> but for... Reasons of seeking God's face. Jehoshaphat does not line up the front line with soldiers. He lines them up with worshipers. Is that an indicator of how to fight your battle? When we're provoked, when we're attacked, when you don't have the answers, it's easy to go in all guns blazing, hostile and ready to fight. But this isn't what the children of Israel do. They send out worshipers. They don't fight with spears. They don't fight with uh, swords. They don't fight with shields. They fight with the worship and praises to God. When you don't know what to do, this is the third thing that Jehoshaphat does that we can do. When you don't know what to do, worship. Seek God and worship. Now, practically speaking, why when we go to battle should we worship? First of all, this worship is complete, wholesaled, sold out trust in God. Not trusting in our own might, 
not trusting in our own ability, but being willing to step back in the face of battle and say, God, I trust you wholly, and I'm just going to worship you through this. I'm going to lift up your name in the midst of this. I'm going to glorify you, and I'm going to worship you. The second reason to use worship, especially on a spiritual level, is worship is your warfare. Worship is your warfare. This is incredible what happens next, by the way. Let's go to the next verse. At the very moment, read carefully, the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The very moment they began to sing and give praise, the enemies of God's people turned on themselves. Worship is a weapon that when we treat it with the dignity and with the reverence and the power that it has can flip the table on the kingdom of darkness. Worship is a powerful weapon of God's people. It can destroy and tear apart the works of the enemy. If you think of when David played the harp to Saul, evil spirits had to flee. They couldn't stay there. When Paul and Sarah... Paul and Silas were in prison and they began to worship. The prison walls came down. There's something that happens in the atmosphere. There's something that happens in the spiritual realm when God's people worship. When we come together in prayer and worship night, it's not our trendy attempt at a midweek, right? It is the opportunity and the space for God's people to come together, to lift up his name and do battle. Worship is... Your warfare. When you don't know what to do, have you considered worship as your weapon? Okay, so as we step away from Jehoshaphat tonight, we had three things to hear from God and three practical things to do when we don't know what to do. And here they are, three things to hear from God when you don't know what to do. The first one is this, don't be afraid or discouraged. Next slide, guys. Thank you. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Your battle is God's battle. And thirdly, God says, I am with you in the midst of this. This is three things to hear when you don't know what to do. And here's three things that Jehoshaphat did that we can do when we don't know what to do. The first one is this, is to seek God's will The second one is to seek God's face. How do we do this? By remembering that he's listening, by declaring his power and calling on his faithfulness. And finally, seek God in worship. Worship is our weapon and worship is our warfare. Seek his will, seek his faith and use worship as your warfare when you don't know what. Today. Amen. Amen.